Hey there, this is Gregory Williams, and I'm the senior pastor of Transform Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the following presentation really inspires you to deepen your faith walk and encourages you along your journey. Enjoy the message. Amen. All right, we're starting a brand new series, and it's called In His Hands. In His Hands. In His Hands. Turn around and tell your neighbor, in his hands. Are you in his hands? <laughs> All right. So, Resurrection Sunday is coming up. I'm so, super excited with that because we have a production plan. We have some amazing things planned. So don't forget to invite your family and friends. Bring them along. It's going to be amazing. And we're kind of building up to that through the series as we talk about you know, the time where it's probably the most significant event in Christendom. It's basically what gave rise to Christianity. It, without this event, which is the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. You know, Jesus was amazing. He taught amazing. He did some amazing miracles. But without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. And without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. But... The question we have and we want to talk about in the next few weeks is dealing with how we deal in a world that sometimes is not so conducive to our views, to things that are happening in our world, and it's so sometimes sporadic what happens in our world. So here's the title I have for you today. It's called Uncertain Times. Uncertain Times. One of the challenges we face in our life is our desire for stability in an unstable world. I think most of us, we crave something that's predictable. For the most part, you know, there's the odd occasion where we like surprises and we like things happening in our world and maybe someone surprises you with a cake or, you know, your wife tells you that she's booked a holiday for you, some great things and there's some spontaneous behaviors that we like. But for the most part, we like predictability. Because when something goes off course, we're not so thrilled about that. We're not so happy when things just flow out of course. I was watching a documentary recently, and it was about a natural disaster that happened in Japan a little while ago. And one of the people they interviewed said this amazing statement. They said this, if we just knew what was going to happen, we could have prepared for it. Right? If we just knew what was going to happen, we could have prepared for it. And that statement is really what all of us want to know. Because if something in our world is unexpected, we're often thrown for a loop. Right? So if we know what to expect, we can prepare for it. But the reality is that our world doesn't give us cues as to what's going to happen. We don't get a memo that tells us, hey, tomorrow such and such is going to happen. We're often left with unpredictability. And we live under this illusion of predictability because we think that's what we live in. It's our normal, it's our safe environment. The more we have predictability, the safer we feel. We get up, we go to work, we go to our jobs, we take the same train, we drive the same route back, we get home, we have dinner, we watch TV, we go to bed, you get up, rinse and repeat, right? And that pattern, that pattern of our life is predictable, and because it's predictable, we feel safe. Nothing can 
harm us if we keep that pattern. We feel fairly certain things will go the same way tomorrow as they did today. And so therefore, we feel comfortable. In this documentary that I was watching, these people, they got up, they went about their daily activity, they went about their daily routine, children went to school, parents went to work, people went to the grocery store, people, delivery drivers delivered their packages, drove their normal routes, and because that's what they usually did. But on March 11, 2011, at 2.59 in the afternoon, there was a massive earthquake that resulted in a tsunami that swept in so quickly that people didn't have time to prepare or react. And it resulted in almost 20,000 people perishing. This is what happens in our world. Because our world, as much as we want it to be safe, is unpredictable. We live in an uncertain world. What we would like to think is a safe place and predictable, but accidents happen all the time. Disasters happen all the time. All kinds of things happen to ordinary people doing ordinary things on ordinary days. Uncertainty is just a part of life. Have you ever been hesitant about making a decision because you are uncertain what to do? or which direction to go in, or maybe I should take this job, or maybe I should go to this university, or maybe I should take this person out, or maybe I should date this person, maybe is she the one for me, is he the guy for me, and we are uncertain? Because there's big questions about our life, right? Which direction do we go in? So how certain are we in uncertain times that God is with us? Do we as Christ followers allow situations to dictate our emotions, our directions, our faith? Do we let situations control what we decide? Or do we let God decide our direction? Where do we stand when we face an uncertain future, an uncertain decision? What does God say about uncertainty in our world? Because we live in an uncertain world, right? Most of you would agree with that. One of the most dramatic moments, certainly in the scripture, and maybe in all of humanity and human history, took place in a really small room. It took place towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And some of you know this, and essentially, his disciples were coming to Jerusalem, and they were going to gather together to celebrate the Passover. If you don't know anything about what this Passover is, it's a Jewish festival, and really it was a meal. It was a kind of festival that was there to remember what God did for the Jews. And they would gather together around a meal, and it happened hundreds of years before Jesus actually came along. Earlier, the Israelites had been captured. They had been in Egyptian slavery for almost 400 years. And so just at this moment that they were about to celebrate this Passover event is what they're celebrating, God had decided that they're going to move out of Egypt and into the promised land. And the next day, they were going to get up and walk out of Egypt, right? And so that night, they were going to celebrate this meal. And it had been almost 400 years of captivity for these Jewish people. 
70 of them had entered Egypt, and there was basically one family. And 400 years later, there were about 2 million of them. And so the majority of their life, all they had known was slavery. They had been living in slavery to the Egyptian for almost 400 years. And, and since the very beginning, that's all they knew. And they had prayed, and they had prayed, and they had prayed, and they had prayed to their God. And for 400 years, their prayers were unanswered. 400 years later, God sends a deliverer, Moses. And Moses said, tomorrow, we're leaving Egypt. So, Pack up your bags, get things ready, because we're going out. And God is going to send what was referred to as the angel of death. And anyone who does not have any blood on their doorposts and their lintels, their firstborn child is going to die. And so, taking Moses at his word, these Israelites, they sacrificed this calf. They had this last meal together, the last meal that they would have in Egypt. They took the blood of this lamb, they coated their doorposts, and sure enough, that night, the angel of death came in, and those that didn't have the blood on their doorposts, their child died. And Pharaoh said, finally, you may go. And so this was the last meal, the last supper, the time that these Israelites had in captivity. And they gathered in Egypt, and the next day they packed up everything. They got all their belongings. They loaded up everything they had, even the wealth of the Egyptians gave it to them, and they headed out to the promised land. And now, 1,400 years later, Jesus is going to gather with his disciples to celebrate this deliverance of God, this remembrance of what God did for his people, his Jewish people. And Jesus gathers with his disciples essentially for their last supper as well. Just before Jesus would not just deliver his people, but deliver the world. And this was the last supper. So the disciples, they'd done this before. They'd gathered with Jesus and had this meal before. But this was different. There had been a time when they'd gathered over the Passover meal and things had been great because Jesus was a star. He was a celebrity. He was a cultural icon. Thousands of people gathered to hear him speak. And they would come from all parts of the towns and cities just to come and hear him. And so these disciples, they felt privileged to sit on the left and the right hand of this amazing guy named Jesus. And things were going great. There was a lot of momentum, you know. And the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger. And the miracles kept getting bigger and bigger. And this was amazing because they would gather to hear this amazing man speak. But this meal... This supper, this last supper, was different because it's going to be the last one that Jesus had with his disciples. And they had realized that things had shifted a little bit. The momentum had kind of turned around. There were rumors that a group of people were trying to arrest Jesus and trying to isolate him from the crowd to get him alone so they can kind of capture him make him a prisoner, accuse him of all kinds of things. And the disciples knew that if Jesus went down, they would have to go down with him. Well, they would go down with him. And then Jesus doesn't make the situation any lighter. 
he begins to talk about his death. He talked about being taken and they sort of just filtered it out because he kept talking about it a number of times. And because their way of thinking is much like our way of thinking in our world, right? If God is with you, if God is working for you, if God is moving around you, then things get better wherever God shows up, right? God shows up, things get better. God intervenes, things change for the better. God shows up in certainty because when God shows up, there's not less uncertainty, there's more certainty. But they found themselves at this time, things weren't just going bad, they weren't going well at all. Generally, Jesus, when they gathered for the Passover, would tell them, let's gather together, we're going to celebrate this meal, go ahead and prepare. But this time, at this celebration, at this Passover, it was different. Because here they were late in the afternoon, for the Passover, and Jesus hadn't said anything. He hadn't mentioned anything to them, whether they were going to celebrate the Passover, where they were going to gather, what was going to happen. They were going to go to Jerusalem, they knew that. And he said this, when I go to Jerusalem, things are going to get really, really bad. That's what he said. And they probably, like us, would have said the same thing, right? Then why are we going to Jerusalem if things are going to get really, really bad? It was like Jesus had a death wish. It was like he was walking right into the jaws of death and he didn't care. Things were going to get bad and he says things are going to get horrible and he says, all right, boys, follow me. And they go to the outskirts of Jerusalem and they stop and they wait for the sun to set and Jesus sends two of them down into the town and he says, go into the town and meet this mysterious guy who's going to take you to a mysterious place and that's where we're going to set up. It seems like Jesus had already prearranged this Passover meal and they had no clue about it. He didn't want anyone to know where they were going to be because they would be isolated from the crowds and vulnerable. So they sneak into Jerusalem under cover of night not a big celebration, not people shouting, nothing's going on, there's not big hoopla going on. They sneak in, they sneak into Jerusalem, and they sneak into this room, upper room, under cover of night. And they gather in this upper room, and this was strange, because there was no uncertainty, there was tension, there was things going on, and they were not accustomed to this. Why are we behaving in this fashion? And if that wasn't bad enough... Jesus begins the supper and opens up the conversation this way. This is what Mark says. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So in this very intimate of settings, one that's already very somber, and kind of filled with tension, Jesus introduces this insult. To the people who had spent the last three years with him, following him over every hill and brook and valley. They've been through some of the tough times with Jesus. They've been through some amazing times with Jesus. But these 
12 guys were the closest things that Jesus had, people that Jesus had in his entire mission. They had been with him constantly for three years. And this close setting, celebrating the victory of God for their people over Egyptian captors, this is what Jesus says. One of you is going to betray me. Not only is it one of you, this one who has chosen to gather with us around the sacred table of celebration and celebrate the thing that God did to deliver his people and then you're going to turn around and betray me. I mean, this must have come as a shock to 11 of them. They had no idea why this was going to happen. In fact, Jesus was insinuating that one of them was going to actually betray him and they would be like, why would we ever do that to you? Why would we choose to follow you for three years and then betray you now? Why would anyone do that? Scripture says they were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's not me, Jesus. I would never betray you. I would never let you down. You must be mistaken. We would never do that because we've given up everything to follow you. Why now would we betray you? But they'd seen enough of Jesus. They'd seen him do miraculous things. They'd seen him say things that had come to pass and they knew that he's not just making this up. It is one of the twelve, Jesus replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This book we read, this book that we reference all the time, is full of stories and narratives written that take place in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty. In fact, I would say this, as families, as people, as a nation, as a culture, we face uncertainty like we've never faced before because we're living in a world that is shifting so drastically. Everything around us, identification as human beings and gender and equality and all these things are shifting at such a rapid pace, it looks like we're standing on shifting sand. And yet, this book, this is the perfect place to run to because your favorite story, if you were growing up as a Christ follower, the ones that you were raised with, the ones that you love, the ones that you go to, the ones that you recite, the ones that you tell your kids about, the Psalms that you read, maybe your favorite proverb if you have one, was written and reflected a time of extraordinary uncertainty. This is not a book about rich people having fun. This isn't a book about things that went extraordinary well. It's like on Monday you got up, it was a great day, and then Tuesday it got even better because you got a great new job. On Wednesday you got a promotion. On Thursday your boss said, I'm giving you a free car. On Friday, you find out that your kids get scholarships to medical school. They grow up, they have great kids, 
They have a wonderful house. They have two cars and two dogs, and everything is like a fairy tale. The kind of wrinkle-free life like we want to was happy living with no problems. It's not in this book. You won't find any of those stories in this book. Not in these pages. Every single narrative, every single passage, every single thing we draw hope from, security from, comes from times of trouble. Troubling times, stressful times, from lives of people who discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, God was and still is certain. In the midst of uncertainty, when you couldn't trace God's hand, when it seemed like he was absent, they discovered that God was still trustworthy. Have you ever read the story about a teenager named Joseph? Not Mary and Joseph, Joseph of the Old Testament. This guy, he finds himself in the bottom of a well while his siblings, his brothers, discuss his future. I know some of you have sibling rivalries, and sometimes you don't get along with your sibling and your brothers and sisters. But this guy, he was thrown down into a well while his brother discussed, should we sell him or should we kill him? And he can hear this. He's in a well while they talk about his fate. Down a dark well, should we kill him or should we sell him? And you read the story and you discover believe it or not, that God was actually with Joseph. Or maybe you've never read the story about King David who was awakened one day to discover that his son had raised an army to invade the capital city to conquer him and probably kill him. I know we have problems with our kids, but he brought an army to kill his dad. And you read the story and you find out that God was in the middle of that. He was with David. And there's the story of most of us heard growing up about a mother who had a baby son who she loved and cherished. And Pharaoh decided that there were too many slaves in Egypt and he was going to eliminate a whole bunch of children. Butcher them. And Pharaoh sent out his butchers to slaughter them. And this woman decided that rather than getting my son slaughtered by these pharaohs and these butchers, I'm going to wrap him in some leaves, put him on a boat, and send him down the Nile that was filled with crocodiles. I'd rather send my son into uncertainty with crocodiles than have him butchered. I'll deal with the river rather than the butchers. But you know the story, God was with the child and he grew up and he became Moses. But where was God when she let her son go in the middle of, her, of the Nile? Where she did not know the end of the story. Before she knew the end of the story, where was God in that. And then that's a reflection and a foreshadowing of another baby who was rescued from a similar fate as Mary and Joseph discovered Herod's hatred because there was a 
prophecy about a child who was going to become king of the Jews and he was jealous and he wanted to eliminate this. So he decided to kill every child below a certain age. And Mary and Joseph, they escape of all places to Egypt. Where's God in that? You read these stories and you discover that God was right there in the middle. That God somehow still had the whole world in his hands. Every single story, read them for yourself, but every single story where it seems like things have spun out of control and all the momentum was gone and things were headed for disaster and things looked like there were going to be a whole mess, all that activity it seemed like God was absent. And the bad guys, they won. And the evil kings, they won. And the gods of the pagan empires, they won. And you read these stories and you discover that in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty, there's God and nothing has changed and he still has the whole world in his hands. And now, in the last few hours that Jesus had with his disciples, Mark says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, take, take it. This is my body. These guys, they would have been staring with shock at Jesus. What are you talking about? Because he's just dropped a bomb on them telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And now he's talking about his body being broken. What do you mean? This is your body. This all this death talk again. All this negativity again. We don't want to hear it. Because listen carefully. If you're from God, things have to turn around. If you're from God, there needs to be more certainty, not less uncertainty. Jesus continues. He said, then he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. And he foreshadows what's going to take place a few hours later. He's going to be nailed to a cross in front of all of their eyes and he's going to die. And then they leave the room and they are going down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's so much drama that's going to happen. And eventually he is going to be arrested. And it gets worse. In verse 29, Jesus says, By the way, not only will one of you betray me, you'll also fall away from me. Not just one of you, all of you are going to disappear. He says this, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. And they're looking at each other with shock. They're looking at each other saying, is it me? Is it you? Did I not know you well enough? We slept in the same room. We we ate the same meals. And you're going to turn around and betray him? I know I'm not going to, but you're going to. And Peter, Peter has the biggest mouth. You know, he stands up and he says this. And he's thinking... Enough of this negativity, Jesus. Enough of these bad news and these doom sayings. Enough about your death. Enough about all this arrest. Enough about all these betrayals. There's no way 
that we're going to allow this to happen. Because guess what? If God is for you, he's going to intervene. He's not going to let you be killed. He's not going to let you have this horrible death. If you are the son of God, this is not how the story goes. There's more certainty because you're from God, right? There has to be more faith. There's more miracles. There's more activity. There's more intervention. God will surely do something to stop this from happening. And Peter, in verse 29, he says, he declares this, he says, even if all of them fall away, Jesus, I will not. I won't do it. Even if they betray you, not me. Because that's not how the story is supposed to go. Even if everyone abandons you, I'm not going to fail you. I'll stick with you to the end. And later, the very same Peter, with all of this faith, will listen to a young girl, accuse him, and he denied Jesus three times. Now here's... My question for you and for me as we move into this series. And maybe it's the same questions that these disciples had that had followed Jesus and now face an uncertain future. In your life, maybe things are not going the way you wanted. In your marriage, things are but a bit difficult right now. Your family seems to be pulling apart rather than pulling together. And sometimes your finances seem like they're going down the barrel. It seems like it's taking a bad turn. The economy, it does not look great right now. Will there be a recession? Will there be another pandemic? Will the, what does that mean for me and my job and my family? Will we have enough food on the table? What's going to happen to my kids? Is something going to happen to them? Is the government going to be good and able to provide for us? Is they going to abandon us? Are they going to force us to do things we're not supposed to or want to do? In all of this uncertainty, where can we find stability? So here's the question I want you to lean in this morning. Can you maintain faith in God when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you maintain faith in God when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you trust God? Can you continue to embrace faith in a God and a heavenly father, a personal heavenly father, when you see no evidence of his activity in your life, in your culture, in your country, in your family, it seems like things are just getting worse. Your answer, your answer to that question, my answer to that question, will determine our response to the uncertainty of our lives. With our children, with our family, with our parents, with our loved ones. The strange thing is, and here's the dilemma, for the next few weeks, I want to keep pointing out this because it is so extraordinarily important. Especially for us, and pay close attention, who equate God with prosperity. And why shouldn't we? We've been so incredibly prosperous, right? Who equate God with forward momentum because it's always been good for us and God has always been good for us and he's been there. So why shouldn't we expect positive 
forward momentum? Why shouldn't we equate God with blessing? Why shouldn't we equate God with physical, tangible blessing? And why shouldn't we? Because that's what we've always experienced for generation after generation. So why shouldn't we expect that? But I imagine if you were to go down to these disciples, these men that had gathered around this table for this last supper, and ask them a few months later, and ask them this question, guys, when was the darkest moment you followed Jesus? When was it the darkest? When did you have the least amount of hope? When did you begin to wonder, did we make a mistake following this guy? Maybe he's just another false messiah. Maybe we've wasted our lives. Maybe we wasted our future. Where was the darkest moments? And I believe they were said to you, it began when we sat around this table. We sat around this dinner table and realized things aren't going to get better. They were going to get worse. It's when we gathered around that table at night and he promised us things would get worse. And not only that, one of us would betray him. And not only that, but all of us would fall away from him. In a few hours, we fell away. And the one guy who stood up above everyone else and said, I will never betray you, Jesus, he denied him three times. When Jesus was arrested, we lost hope. When he was beaten, we lost all of our strength. And he died, we lost everything. You want to know what the darkest hours were for us? It was those hours when we realized we had completely wasted our time and God isn't up to anything. And then... If we had said, where in your time with Jesus do you think God was doing the greatest work? Was it when he was healing the lame guy? What about when he was healing the blind guy? That was pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Or when he raised the dead. What about Lazarus? Lazarus was dead in that tomb for four days. He stung and Jesus brought him back to life. Wasn't God at work then? Yeah. They'd been literally in that day, and they could smell Lazarus. When you saw God's presence with you the most, when was God doing the most in your view? You know what I think they would have said? They would have said those same hours when it seemed to us like he was doing the least. Those very same hours when it seemed like he was absent, when he was missing, those darkest hours, those very dark hours, God was doing some of his greatest work in those darkest hours when it seemed it was completely, he was completely inactive. He was most active because those darkest hours were the epicenter of the salvation of mankind and that God was and God would be the hours for literally thousands of people we reference and talk about and go back to and remember and rejoice of God's goodness and great. But if you ask them in that moment, we would have said, game over, time done, it's over, it's done with, we've wasted our lives. This 
is a difficult message and passage for us. That's a difficult message for us as Christians. And yet, it is our story, isn't it? It's for those who have chosen to follow God, and especially those who have decided to place their faith in Jesus. This is our story. This is why we are here. This is why we celebrate Jesus, because he conquered at the most inopportune time. It looked like he was defeated, but he got a victory. That God seems to take broken things and do his most amazing work. God seems to wait for the very last minute to do his amazing work. That God seems to take broken and helpless situations and show up in a way, in a way that would, we would not choose. We wouldn't choose this because we would never allow it to get that bad. But God seems to wait for the worst point and shows up and does amazing things. This is God's way. The greatest thing begins with the biggest messes. The most amazing works God does generally are launched in a time of personal and national brokenness. And this is what God does. So the question for you and the question for me is will we maintain faith when we cannot see his hand? As our faith begins to stutter, our faith begins to shake a little bit, our faith begins to waver, we begin to look to the left and to the right, and we begin to doubt, and we look at our circumstances. Now more than ever in this place, this is where we need to go to, because this story is a story of our salvation that was birthed at the time of extraordinary darkness and extraordinary uncertainty. And that's neat. You might be saying, that's great. Maybe even a little bit inspiring. But what does that mean for me? That's not going to help me get a job. That's not going to help my kids get a better education and go back to school. That's not going to change anything tomorrow when my wife goes back to work and faces the same problems. That's not going to help my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter. That doesn't make me well right now if I'm sick. And you know what? You're right. It doesn't. Although that idea, that insight, that truth about what Scripture does doesn't change anything in your circumstances right now, but here's what it does do. It allows you to embrace uncertainty with the certainty of knowing that God is still in control. That although life is uncertain, God is not. Although life is uncertain and family is uncertain and future is uncertain and economy is uncertain and the world seems uncertain, God is not uncertain. He is with us. He still has the whole world in his hands. And having this knowledge and embracing it, even if it's just with our little fingertips that we can just grab onto, it helps us and keeps us from moving in a direction that can even further complicate the difficulties in our world. It will teach us to keep an eye out for the activity of God that may come by complete surprise as often as it took the characters of scripture by surprise. 
So hang on to it. Embrace this simple truth that even though life is uncertain, God is not uncertain. And he still has the whole world in his hands. And all these situations that can pull us in so many different directions, especially when we feel helpless and we want God to show up now and we want him to do something now and we want him to make a change now and he doesn't. But he always shows up. Not necessarily when I want him to, but when it's the right time. And so Paul, the great apostle, he puts this in perspective and he says this. He says, and we know that all things God, that God works for good. We know that all things God works for good. And all things God works for good. All things. Not everything is good. Not every situation is good. Your all things might be different from my all things and our all things could be various in nature but in all things God works for good does that mean in my hurt in my pain in my loss in those things as well yes in those things as well God can take all things all of it. And things in our uncertain world is different for each of us. Our experiences are different. Our dreams are different. Our expectations are different. Our painful life is different. Our pain in different situations is different. Painful and scary sometimes. One of the scariest times in my life was when I had to go to this conference that was prepared months in advance and just before I got there, there was this massive earthquake, 6.9 earthquake. And I had to fly in. And people around me, they were saying, don't go because it's dangerous. There's going to be lots of aftershocks and things are going to be scary. But I'm like, but I have faith in God. And more so, I didn't feel like I wanted to let them down. So I went and we got to the hotel room. And sure enough, there was another earthquake. I was lying on my bed and the whole hotel room began to shake. Scariest thing, because you don't know if this massive piece of concrete are going to just fall right on you. You want to rush out, and by the grace of God, nothing happened to me at that point. But we had three, three more earthquakes before I left. But the church gathered, you know. And the church worshipped, because in uncertain times, they worshipped God like never before. And God did some amazing things. Because we worship a certain God, even in uncertain times. And so Paul, he completes this thought. And we know that in all things, God works for the good, for those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works it out for good. My friends, I don't know what your future holds. I don't know what the future is for your family, but here's what I do know. Although life is uncertain, God is not. And he still has the whole world in his hands. And even though life is uncertain, God is not, and he still has your world in his hands. 
And regardless of what you see or don't see, what opportunities you might have or don't have, here's an opportunity for you to embrace a faithful God, even though circumstances dictated might be difficult and hard. It might be impossible to see his hand at work. You might see no evidence of his hand or catch a glimpse of his life or his faith in your world, but God is still in control. God is still on the throne. God is still a God we can worship with abandon. God is still a God we can continue to trust. Even though our lives are uncertain, he is not. And he still has the whole world in his hands. You and me, we are in the master's hands. Leave you with two questions. How do we maintain our perspective on God in the midst of our uncertain times? We're all going to face these, right? How do you maintain faith when you see no evidence of God at work? How do you maintain trust when you don't see, right? So how do we maintain perspective of God in the midst of our uncertain times? What can you do? Number two, how can you learn to lean into God even when you don't feel his presence? As human beings, we often side with our feelings more than what we know. Paul in his great letters often tells us it's not about feeling, it's about knowing. We want to feel but God wants us to know. Know that he's with you. You don't need to feel his presence to know he's with you. So what can you learn? Or how can you learn to lean into God even when you don't feel his presence? Hello again, and thank you so much for listening. I really hope that message has encouraged you. Would you please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review? This really helps others get exposed to this uplifting message. I would also love for you to share this message with a friend or someone you think would be really inspired and blessed by this. Sharing this on social media like Facebook really does help others also get this free content. I'm honored you chose to spend some of your valuable time with us. Have an amazing day.